at the start of our church revitalization effort, I underwent a church planter assessment over a couple of days in Chicago. And one of the main features of this assessment was based on the popular TV series Shark Tank. And so um, I had to come before a panel of sharks or investors and pitch our church planting idea in about 90 seconds and then they would have several minutes of follow-up questions and what they were trying to determine was whether or not our vision and our plan for building this church would be successful and sustainable and i had to do this pitch as did all of the other individuals who were with me at that assessment and as i was listening to some of the pitches for church plans it was really quite discouraging these pitches sounded like business plans, and they were filled with some gimmicks and unique novel features for how a church should be built and grown. But the plans that were most encouraging were the plans that mirrored Christ's plan for the church that is presented in various texts in the New Testament scriptures. And as I had to stand before these sharks, and as I walked up, I think they even were playing the music from Jaws as, as I was going up there. In those intimidating moments, I, I had a flash thought that went through my mind. Should I change the plan that I'm about to present to these sharks, to Big Bucks Baptist Church, who would perhaps invest in our endeavor? Well, as I was walking up there, I, I was thinking of this reality that churches all over the world are tempted to deviate from Christ's plan to build his church. And, and we at Resurrection Church can be tempted to deviate from that plan as well, even as we are in these formative stages of determining how this church will press forward. Now, from the start, I think we need to concede that the New Testament instruction for building a church is not as detailed as we might want it to be. And as we read the New Testament, we start to see that there are not exact, timeless steps for building a church. There's no cookie-cutter plan for making a church, but instead there's a blueprint that requires the leading of the Spirit and the discernment of the believers as we press forward to see a church grown. So we recognize that in our modern era, just as it was in the first century, there is not one unique shape of the church. There won't be the same ministry endeavors in every place. There won't be the same styles of music or small group structures or strategies at every stage of the church's life. But ultimately, in the New Testament scriptures, we have all that we really need to know what Christ desires for us as we seek to build a church here. So I want to frame Ephesians 4, 7 through 16 in that way. It's Christ's plan to build his church. And I think that that's what this really is. Now, why is this important for us? Well, I think we all recognize the stage of life that we're in. And so we really need to attend to this. We need to pay attention to what Christ has to say. But beyond that, I think as we look at the church worldwide, we might start to wonder, does Christ really have a plan for his church? When we hear texts like we considered last week, where we're called to walk in unity as the body of Christ, and we start to look even in just our South Metro at the troubled, broken, and divided churches, and as we listen to podcasts 
right now one very popular documenting the fall of a mega church on on the west coast we might start to wonder is christ's plan for his church sufficient is it sufficient for us and, and does it matter i think as we examine this text this morning we're going to start to see that christ has a glorious plan for his church and it's a plan that includes every single one of you It includes all of us, and even though there are failures from the very first days of the church for people to follow through on Christ's plan, we can rest in his sustaining grace to bring it about. And and as we examine this this morning, let's pray all along that Christ will use us to accomplish his purposes on this earth. Let me begin by reading this entire text for us. And as we do, I want you to notice that Christ gives grace to every believer, enabling them to live worthy of their calling in him. He gives leaders to the church who are then given the task to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. And in turn, these believers, by virtue of their connection to Christ, the grace they've received in the equipping that they've been given by their leaders, are now in a position to grow together for the mutual upbuilding of the church into maturity in Christ. That's what we'll see in our text this morning. So let's read together Ephesians 4, 7 through 16. Paul says, Now grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. For it says, When he ascended on high, he took the captives captive. He gave gifts to people. But what does he ascended mean, except that he also descended to the lower parts of the earth? The one who descended is also the one who ascended far above all the heavens to fill all things. And he, gave him, and he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers, equipping the saints for the work of the ministry to build up the body of Christ until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of God's Son, growing into maturity with a stature measured by Christ's fullness. Then we will no longer be little children, tossed by the waves and blown about by every wind of teaching, by human cunning with cleverness in the techniques of deceit. But speaking the truth in love, let us grow in him, or in every way into him who is the head, Christ. From him the whole body, fitted and knit together by every supporting ligament, promotes the growth of the body for upbuilding in love by the proper working of each individual part. So in this text, I want to observe four features of Christ's plan to build his church. Some of these are just realities that we need to know. Others are exhortations that we need to follow. But the first reality is that the victorious Christ gives grace to every believer. So Paul begins by articulating the guarantee of the church's success. That is that Christ is victorious and he has given grace to every believer. So he says, now grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Every one of us have received grace according to Christ's infinite and immeasurable gift. He dispenses this grace to every single believer. This is something that we need to know. Have, have you thought about this? You have received grace from Jesus Christ. All the way back in Ephesians 2, Paul pointed out that our salvation is a gift of grace 
from Christ, but he wants to make the point now that Christ gives enabling, continuing, sustaining grace to every single believer. So we're united as one, but every one of us has grace from Christ. Now, I think some of us might object to that statement, or at least we operate without belief in this statement, saying things like this. I know that I receive salvation by grace through faith as a gift of God, but in my everyday life as a Christian, I just don't feel that grace active in my life. Or perhaps you might object, well, you, you, you don't know me. I, I am a Christian, but I'm a pretty messed up individual. And, and I just don't think that God's grace is working in my life. Christ must have skipped me when he was handing out the gift of grace. Or perhaps we might simply ask in doubt, is God's grace enough? Is that enough for me? And is it enough for Resurrection Church as we go forward as we seek to see a church built in Burnsville. Now, I don't think that these questions are obscene or unimaginable, and I don't think that these questions are off-limits. The the reason Paul addresses these things is because we have questions like this, so we need to ask them, but then we need to answer them in the way that the New Testament authors do. So when we feel like we don't have Christ's grace operating in our life, what recourse do we have? Well, Paul helps us here. He, he backs up his assertion that we all have received grace from Christ with an appeal to the Old Testament. And uh, this is a bit of a slog that we'll have to go through. I don't think it's really a slog. I think it's really interesting. But it is detailed because Paul is trying to back up the claim that Christ has given each of us grace by quoting Psalm 68:18. So if someone asks you, how do you know that you have God's grace, how likely would you be to quote Psalm 68:18? Well, probably not very likely, but after today, very likely. And, and actually, you'll misquote Psalm 68:18 because Paul does not quote Psalm 68:18 correctly. Um, so he writes, For it says, When he ascended on high, he took the captives captive, he gave gifts to his people. So there, there are a couple of issues here. One, we have to figure out, why is Paul quoting Psalm 68:18? And then as you flip back to read Psalm 68, 18, the final line is not that he gave gifts to people, but that people gave gifts to him. So, so what is going on here? And how does this verse assure us that Christ has indeed given us a gift of grace? Beyond that, when Paul explains his quotation, he says nothing about gifts. Instead, he enters into a somewhat complicated line of thinking about the one who ascended also being the one who descended. So we've got to make sense of this. So bear with me as we walk through this, and it will be worth it because whenever you doubt God's grace in your life from here on out, you can quote this verse that Paul quotes. He says, when he ascended on high, he took the captives captive, he, he gave gifts to people. Here's Paul's explanation of why this matters. But what does he ascended mean, except that he also descended to the lower parts of the earth? The one who descended is also the one who ascended far above all the heavens to fill all things. So this might sound like it's a parenthetical aside that is unimportant, but this is vital to Paul's argument. Paul is trying to make the point here 
that in Psalm 68:18, David has observed God conquer his enemies. And in, in that Psalm, God goes on then to, to crush the wicked. He rewards the righteous, but then wicked people in these rebellious surrounding nations give gifts to the king so that way he can reside in that area in peace. But what is this about the he ascended and descended? What is going on there? I think Paul is trying to teach us to read the Old Testament, not as old uh, as Jews with, with the framework of Judaism, but as Christians with the framework of Christ. Over and over again, Paul appeals to the Old Testament, not as he understood it up until his conversion, but as he understands it with Christ as the interpretive key to the entire Bible, and ultimately as with Christ as the end of the entire Bible. So all that God has done to redeem humanity from the beginning of time, and particularly in Israel, comes in a heightened way in Jesus Christ. So what Paul is saying is that the Israelites, recorded in this psalm under King David, could rejoice with confidence that God was their victorious king. No one could defeat him. And even though at times it seemed like Israel was feeble and weak, and even though their kings were failures over and over again, they had a great king in Yahweh who would conquer his enemies and give them confidence forevermore. Paul is saying that was true of Israel. But there's more. In Jesus, we have a greater king who's a greater conqueror. And David wrote better than he know. He talked about this imagery of God descending from the throne on high to care about the things of men and establish his reign. Well, now there's been a different kind of ascending, and it's prefaced with the descent of God in Jesus' incarnation. He came as a human, and he descended even further into death. I think that's what's meant by the, the lower parts of the earth. So Christ is the God who descended into death, but he didn't just descend. He ascended. He was raised from the dead, as Paul declared in Ephesians 1 and 2, and now he's ascended into heaven. In, in his final encapsulation here, in identifying the one who ascended and descended, is this. He is the one who filled all things. That's the end of verse 10. So who is this person? Well, I've already said it's Jesus. How do we know Paul is thinking about Jesus here? because this is the exact language that he uses in Ephesians 1, 20 to 23, when he describes God's power displayed in Christ. So Ephesians 1, 20, God exercised this power in Christ by raising him from the dead and seating him at his right hand in the heavens. So Christ descended in death, and now he's ascended in the resurrection. Verse 21, far above every ruler and authority, power and dominion and every title given not only in this age but also in the age to come and he subjected everything under his feet and appointed him as head over everything for the church which is his body the fullness of the one who fills all things in every way so do you see the continuity in paul's language to describe christ there and here and the point is that christ is now the all-powerful king ruling over all things, and he fills all things in every way. So when Christ says that he's given us grace, he means it. We still have that troubling piece, though, of Paul's revision of Psalm 68:18 to say that 
Christ gave gifts to people when Psalm 68:18 says that God received gifts from people. And, and I don't think that this is insignificant. There are a couple of ways that we could answer this. One way is that we could read all of Psalm 68:18 and see that over and over again, the God who conquered his enemies gave gifts to his people in essence. So he raises up the impoverished. He provides for the widows. And we could say Paul is just summarizing the essence of the psalm and, and encapsulating it in a tweak in the final line of this verse. I think there is something else more significant that is going on here. And I think Paul is saying, hey, look how God conquered for Israel. He conquered in a way where he crushed his enemy. He, he showed up on Israel's behalf and he defeated defeated and destroyed those who resisted against him. So much so that in Psalm 68, 18, even the rebellious ended up giving gifts to him to try to make peace with him so that they could dwell in safety. But in Christ, in the fuller execution of God's justice and judgment and conquering, there's a kind of conquering that doesn't seek to crush everybody who resists them, but to transform all those who resist him. So when Christ comes as the victorious conquering king, he does indeed come with wrath and judgment, but he bears it on himself. So that instead of, of others trying to give gifts to him to pacify his wrath, he declares that he has already pacified God's wrath in his own conquering, and now he welcomes all to him as his friend. Those who were once enemies are not required to give him gifts, but instead Christ gives them gifts is he welcomes them into his kingdom and into his divine rule and reign. So on, on the basis of Christ's victorious conquering, we have the gift of grace, and there's no higher authority by which we could have it. So while at times it may seem as if Christ's grace isn't active in our life, I, I would suggest to you that your recourse should not be to doubt or to give up on Christ, but to draw closer to him because he is the only source of grace. He is the final and authoritative giver of grace in this world. I would also submit that if Resurrection Church is going to exist and press forward and move out of the incubation stage here as we seek to to press out in our new location as a fully viable church, we have nothing else that we can rely upon other than Christ's grace. So we sang this morning that Jesus is strong and kind. He's strong to defeat all of his foes, but he's kind to welcome them in now as his friends. And that's who we are, and that's how we have to press forward. The, the first step in Christ's plan for building the church is that he is victorious, he conquers, and he gives grace to every believer. That's, that's step number one. That is done, but it's ongoing. We keep receiving the gift of Christ in, in his grace. Number two, though, the second step here we could say is that the victorious Christ then gives leaders to the church. So as he gives grace to individuals, he unites them now as his body, and he gives to the church leaders. So he says, and he himself, verse 11, that's Christ, the victorious conquering Lord, gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors, and teachers. 
now if you're if you're reading um, this text and you're trying to think what would be the smart business executive be plan that would impress all of the sharks uh, it's not going to be to give the church people to ensure their success but to give them wealth and kingdoms and security and all of these things so it should be somewhat surprising to us that the list of things that christ gives in his grace is not the kind of success that we that we might measure a church's success by it's not the kind of tools you would think a church needs to survive christ didn't give a cool motto or a an attractive brand though it's nice to have some of those things instead he gave leaders so he lists five offices or titles that are to be received as a gift to the church now immediately we recognize that he gave some to be these things the grace comes to every believer but within the the community of faith there are certain individuals who are called to these offices apostle prophet evangelist pastor teacher let's let's work through these because if these are gifts of christ to the church for the building up of the church we need to to at least attempt to understand it so he starts with apostles and prophets there's certainly debate even now in our day of whether or not this these offices exist are they ongoing do we have apostles and prophets today or were these two offices limited to the first generation of the new covenant era and, and then they ceased beyond the establishment of the church. How, how should we think about this? Let me give you three things to think about. And if you disagree with me on this, that's fine. We should talk about it. There are disagreements on this, but I think that, that this is at least sufficient for our understanding. First, we need to understand that the results of the apostles and prophets ministry have not ceased, even if we conclude that the office has ceased. So if we're going to say that there are no longer apostles and prophets, we need to at least recognize that the ministry of the original apostles and prophets is ongoing. So their foundational work continues in the church today, even if the offices don't, and it continues primarily through the record of the instruction and teaching in the New Testament. Second, the this is where it's complicated. The New Testament authors appear to use both of these terms, apostles and prophets, in both technical and non-technical ways. Um, so, so we have to even, in those categories, distinguish between technical official apostle and general apostle and technical official prophet and general prophet. This comes through more clearly in books like 1 Corinthians, where um, you have some who are encouraged, women to, are encouraged to prophesy in the assembly as long as they do so with their head covered. So, so there's prophecy that happens in various ways. It's, it's very um, hard to understand. But I think we need to be clear that their, their technical apostleship, as in Paul and the other apostles, I think we can be very confident in saying that that was unique and no longer continuous. So we ought to reject those who um, appoint themselves in this way and find a lot of airtime on TBN and other places. We, we want to reject that. And, and I think the same with those who would suggest that they're the equivalent of the Old Testament prophets, you know, someone who designates themselves in that standing. In the non-technical sense, there's, there's debate and discussion but I think that Paul's usage here is in the technical sense of the official ap apostles and in prophets, much like the Old Testament 
prophets. And, and my reason for thinking so is that in Ephesians 2.20, when Paul's talking about the creation of the church, Jew and Gentile coming together to form one new humanity, he describes them in this way, as being built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, and Christ is the cornerstone. So what I think Paul is doing in this list of offices is starting with the very initial offices, and then it's going to expand out to the ongoing offices, the, the original and then the continuing. So when we talk about the offices of apostles and prophets here, I don't think that Paul is suggesting that we should be raising up apostles and prophets to lead our church. I think he's pointing back to the foundation of the church. The third thing to think about here in, in my final line of thinking is that as we look at the rest of the New Testament, uh, there are qualifications and instructions for raising up pastors. There aren't for raising up prophets and apostles. So as we think about forming this church here, and as we just finished writing our church constitution not too long ago, we didn't include the offices of apostle and prophet for those reasons. Yet, we need to be clear that there ongoing ministry communicated through the word and the foundation that we build upon is still in effect. So he lists apostles and prophets, and then he moves on to evangelists. He gave some to be evangelists. Uh, this, is, this is a very rare appearance in the New Testament. It only This term really only appears three times in the New Testament. Once in Acts 21.8, where Philip is described as an evangelist, and his seven daughters who prophesied are talked about right under there. He's one of those seven that was raised up in Acts 6. And then in, in uh, 2 Timothy, Paul tells Timothy, do the work of an evangelist. And here we have this appearance of the office, perhaps, of an evangelist. So what is that and what do we do with it? Well, the short answer is we don't know. There's just not enough information to go on here. But I don't think that the, this should be thought of as an ongoing office. So there are individuals in the modern day and not so modern, guys like Billy Graham who, who kind of travel around the country as an evangelist. Or if you grew up in the church world that I grew up in, there would be individuals who would get a team together and they'd drive around in a, in a big trailer and do revival services at churches across the country, and they called themselves evangelists. I, I don't think that's the New Testament description of an evangelist. I think what would be more closely aligned with the New Testament description of an evangelist is what we would refer to as church planters or missionaries. So in that sense, I think the office of evangelist is an ongoing reality of the church. So where apostles and prophets serve as a foundation, evangelists expand that foundation to new places in new ways. So what do we do with that? Do we raise up evangelists here that we have on staff. Well, Lord willing, as our church grows into the future, we will raise up and send out missionaries and church planters. But right now, I, I think the call for us as we apply this text to where we are, every one of us who are members of this church need to say, we must do the work of an evangelist. So, so we are hoping to expand the foundation of the church more broadly in Burnsville here, so there's a calling on each of us to do the work of an evangelist. So I would encourage every one of you to see yourself that way and, and to look at that as a calling that God has put on your life as, as we as a church press forward together. And if you want to be trained 
in that, if you feel incompetent or unable to do that, not only should you remember that you have the grace of Christ to enable you, but come and be equipped during our Bible class hour where Josh is leading us through Christianity Explored, where we're considering how we can share the gospel through the book of Mark. And if you want other ideas, talk to us. We have plenty of ideas about how you can be an evangelist. He ends the list, though, with pastors and teachers. And depending on the translation that you read, you'll see this either separated as pastors and teachers or hyphenated as pastor-teacher. And if you pick up a study Bible on this and read the notes there, there's a lot of debate about whether these are two offices or one. In an overly simplified way, I want to propose that this is one office of pastor-teacher. And I would just point your attention to the Pauline text of 1 Timothy 5.17, where he encourages the church to show honor to their leaders, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. So I think that there are some pastors who take on a greater preaching and teaching responsibility, and I think that's all that Paul is pointing out here. So this term pastor, what is a pastor? Well, many of you recently came through our membership seminar where we talk about this at length, but a pastor is a shepherd. Um, we, we use the Latin translation of this word, but everywhere else in the New Testament, it's just shepherd. And that says something about the role of pastors. They're to lead and feed and tend and defend the flock. And God has given pastor to teach and to guide the church in an ongoing way ultimately until the return of the great shepherd, pastor, teacher, Jesus Christ. But what all of these offices have in common is that they have a responsibility to teach and to communicate knowledge and truth about the gospel. So step number one, or first section of the plan, is that Christ gives grace to every believer. Second, God gives, or Christ gives leaders to the church who teach the church. But then step number three is that the leaders are then to equip the church for ministry and maturity. So he goes on to explain that these gifts are given to equip the saints, this is verse 12, for the work of the ministry to build up the body of Christ until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of God's Son, growing into maturity with a stature measured by Christ's own fullness. So, so it's not the leaders alone who do the work of the ministry, but they're to equip the believers to do the work of the ministry until they reach the unity of the faith and the knowledge of God's Son. I, I think that speaks to the knowledge that they're given, a maturity of knowledge, but then growing into maturity with the stature measured by Christ's own fullness. That is to say, you, you start to look like Jesus. You reflect Christ's likeness until you look exactly like Christ, which will happen on the final day. There's a word that needs to be given to the leaders of this assembly and those who aspire to be leaders in this assembly. And then there's a word to the members of the assembly that we need to consider. First, we just need to recognize that the pastors of the church have the responsibility to equip believers for the work of the ministry. I think, unfortunately, that pastors tend toward one of two extreme errors when they work out their calling. On the one hand, pastors can tend to try to do the work of the ministry themselves at the exclusion of enabling and equipping members of the assembly to do the work of the ministry as well. Why do pastors do this? Well, there are probably a thousand reasons. Sometimes it's because of a lack of trust 
in the, the members of the church to do the work. Sometimes it's out of a pride that wants to be in front and doing everything themselves. But whatever the case is, pastors must equip the church to do the work of the ministry instead of doing the work themselves entirely. I think the other error the, or the other side of this is that pastors can begin to be selfishly lazy and slothful and refuse to do the work of the ministry and and put that burden on the members of the church alone. Um, So pastors can sometimes, instead of being the fulfillment of the new covenant promises that God makes, or he will give shepherds who who will shepherd his flock, they, they start to feed on the flock. They don't defend the flock. They abuse the flock and they just use them to accomplish their purposes. And where pastors tend to do that, generally the church is no longer about Christ and growing into his likeness. It's usually about the pastors in the church becoming like them or or becoming a platform for them. So we recognize, Steve and Josh and myself, that we have a responsibility not to abuse the flock, and and not to take the job of the flock. We need the church to speak into our lives as as you sense errors on either side of that. We don't want to commit those errors or those sins against you. One of the ways that you help us with this is by giving us feedback and shepherding visits that we have on a quarterly basis, by giving feedback on the survey forms before an elder goes on sabbatical. So as Josh prepares for his sabbatical, there, there are surveys that you can fill out to point out where Josh has served this church well and, and where he needs to improve. These are ways that you help us fulfill our calling. But there's also a word that needs to be given to the church, and, and that is that the church needs to do the work of the ministry. The church gathering that we have here is not a spectator sport in the life of the church is not driven by consumerism but instead it should be driven by service to christ and to one another this this is the mode of being that our church has to have and and i just have to say that i am so grateful for so many in this church who are doing the work of the ministry i think whether that's on a sunday we see this evident as so many non elders and pastors are involved in the leading of a service and in in serving the church i think we see this as there are work days where people show up and get things done where there are individuals who take on needs in the church and they meet them there many of you are truly truly serving and we're so grateful to see christ's plan coming to fruition here but i think that we can tend to become worn and tired or perhaps start to believe the lies that we've done our part and now church is just about me getting what I need and what I want. This danger is especially prevalent, I think, in our situation because it's easy for us on the start of this church relocation endeavor to be very gung-ho and excited about just giving of ourselves, and, but then eventually it gets kind of long and hard. And, and eventually there are things that just don't meet our needs in the way we want them to. So I think we need this word from, from the scriptures to tell us to press on, press on in service, because this is God's plan for building the church. And Christ gives us grace. This afternoon in our 
family discussion forum. We're going to talk about this a little bit more. And then again at our men's breakfast on Saturday morning about our role as, as members of this body in doing the work of the ministry. But we, we need to recognize what that means. So if, so if Christ gives leaders to the church and then the leaders go on to equip the saints for the work of the ministry and for maturity, which we understand includes teaching that avoids um, ignorance and, and it protects from uh, false teaching that's described in verse 14, it leads to maturity, then we will no longer be little children tossed by the waves and blown around by every wind of teaching, by human cunning with cleverness and the techniques of deceit. We recognize that that's what the leaders are equipping us to avoid. What does it look like then for the, the church to go on and to do the work of the ministry? Well, surprisingly, it's not primarily about signing up to be involved in a particular program of the church, though I think that's included. Instead, it's primarily about growing in Christ together. So the final stage of this plan is for believers to grow in Christ together. So Paul writes, Speaking the truth in love, let us grow in every way into him who is the head, Christ. From him, the whole body, fitted and knit together by every supporting ligament, promotes the growth of the body for building up itself in love by the proper working of each individual part. So even after hearing those verses, you might be thinking, okay, what's my job here? That's all I want to know. It, I, you do your job as pastors. I just want to know what's my job. What do I need to do starting today if you're not already doing it? Let me give you three things. That, that I think Paul is trying to push every Christian to do. First, Christians do the work of the ministry by speaking the truth in love. So in this first step or this sphere, it's really defined by doctrine about right teaching and communication about the redemptive acts of our triune God and how that influences our thought and life now. So if you're to do the work of the ministry, it's to speak the truth to unbelievers and believers alike, both in a formal doctrinal sense and in your regular ongoing conversations about the application of doctrine to daily life. So to speak the truth in love to an unbeliever will focus on sharing the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. To speak truth to one another is to remind each other about the gospel of Jesus Christ and how it shapes our lives now. But yet, just as we learned last week with respect to forbearance, Christians forbear with one another in love. We speak the truth in love. Our work of the ministry is defined by love at every point along the way, and that includes the way we communicate God's truth to one another. When we speak doctrine and truth to one another without love, it often leaves devastation in its wake, resulting in the kind of destruction that's described the false teaching, these waves that toss individuals about. And, and that's attributed to false teaching. So even right doctrine communicated without love generally results in destruction. And, and we have to be careful about this as pastors speaking to the church, but also as individuals speaking the truth to one another. So we want to equip each of you to speak the truth in love by training you in the truth as we preach and teach, as we have large passages of Scripture read during our, our, our services, as we memorize Scripture together in our Bible classes, 
in our Bible studies and gatherings that happen. It's intended to, to equip you to speak the truth in love. Second, so, so one thing, start speaking the truth in love, which means you need to know the truth. So, so attend to the truth and speak the truth together in love. But then second, the second thing you should work to do, you do the work of the ministry by pursuing growth in Christ. In this sphere, the first sphere emphasizes doctrine. The second sphere emphasizes virtue and personal holiness in reflection of the character of Christ himself. We are to grow in every way in him who is the head, Christ. This spiritual development is vital because it, it displays Christ to one another and to the world, and it's part of God's redemption of our own lives. So for to do the work of the ministry, we must be pursuing personal holiness and growth in Christ together. So first, speak the truth in love. Second, pursue personal holiness. And there will be more on that as we look at the rest of Ephesians. But then the third sphere of doing the work of the ministry carries with it a relational emphasis. He says that through Christ, the whole body fitted and knit together by every supporting ligament promotes the growth of the body for building itself up in love by the proper working of each individual part. I think what Paul is trying to say is that each of you individually have been given grace, but not for you to experience that grace in isolation from one another, but to integrate your lives together so that the church will build itself up together in love. So if you're to do the work of the ministry, you can't do it as a lone ranger in isolation from everyone else. So if you're tempted or inclined towards isolating yourself or not being involved in ministry together, and, and you think primarily of your Christian life in terms of yourself, that's antithetical to Christ's plan for building the church. He wants every individual part to work together in love for the upbuilding of the church. I think it's instructive that throughout Paul uses the imagery of the church as the body of Christ. And uh, throughout the New Testament, we're to envision ourselves as body parts of the larger body of Christ. Well, what good does it do for like a forearm to work itself out by itself all the time? You'll have Popeye forearms, but the rest of the body suffers, right? It's like when you see the guy who works on the uh, glory muscles for the beach, but forgets to go for leg day. Well, he has bird legs and, and he's a hunk and it looks like he's going to fall over. Well, I think that's how we should envision ourselves when we only care about our own ministry or our own spirituality. Paul is calling us not just to care only about our own growth in Christ, but the growth of the entire church. So as we press forward in ministry together, as we'll discuss more in, in the coming weeks, you want to know what it looks like to, for every part to work together in love. This week, read the rest of Ephesians. And in virtually every sermon we have for the rest of this series is going to be about how the individual parts come together to do the work of the ministry. Let's pray now that God would do that in us, that we would follow Christ's blueprint and that he would receive all of the glory.